Okay, well, we're in a two-week series called The Gambler and the King, where we are investigating and we're exploring two of Jesus' most challenging parables. It's funny, a couple of weeks ago, uh, someone came up to me at the grocery store and said, hey, I heard your message on Sunday, and that was really good. That was almost like the old David. I was like, thank you? <laughs> I'm 36, I'm already past my prime. There's an old David, apparently. Well, these messages are old David for sure. We are going all the way back to back when I was the old David in like 2015, I guess. But last week we talked uh, about, of course, the parable of the day workers that we call, and the title is this, The King and His Money. This week, if you're taking notes, what I want you to write down is this, How to Gamble and Win. How to Gamble and when. So we're talking about Jesus' parables, and so the question would be this, what is a parable? Well, a parable, of course, for the teachings of Jesus, they're, they're more than just simple illustrations. They're not that. They're these clever little stories, and sometimes there's explanations, and sometimes there isn't. But the parables of Jesus invite us into looking at the world in a new way through the lens of grace. I told you this last week, but when we read the Bible, we tend to, at least I do, I always tend to associate with the good guy, right? Like, of course, you read about like the Israelites and the Philistines, and it's like, of course, I'm the Israelites. Uh, I'm not the Philistines, except, of course, when I am. And so like, you know, you're reading David and Goliath, of course, you're David and you're never Goliath, except all the times that you actually are, right? And so um, the parables of Jesus, though, come and challenge us uh, in the things that we thought we already knew. And they teach us not only about the kingdom, but also about the king. And so uh, here's what I want to, I'll get into the parable here in a second. But what I want to say is this, the parables of Jesus don't just help us see, but they help us see slowly, right? Uh, Jesus talks in parables to keep people from seeing the truths of the kingdom too quickly, um, because his teachings were incredibly radical. In fact, the week leading up to Jesus' death, he stops telling parables and he just speaks directly and he's dead within a week, right? G- Jesus was smart, right? Of all the other things that he was, he was smart too. And he understood that the kingdom of God is so radically different than anything else we see that if it hits us too square in the jaw, it freaks us out. It scares us. In fact, you can uh, read about this. Emily Dickinson, the, of course, the poet, she wrote a poem called Tell All the Truth, and, but Tell It Slant. Um, and it says this. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children, ease with explanation kind. Listen to this phrase. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. So the parables of Jesus are one of the ways that Jesus uh, dazzles us gradually. And if he didn't, the parables of Jesus were so radical that we would reject them. Alexander uh, Pope, he's an 18th century prophet. He says this, I love this quote. Some people will never learn anything for this reason because they understand everything too soon. Right, so so these are the people who um, consider truth as something that I've already found I already know it. It's like, boom, so glad that's done. And then we file truth under the category of things we already know, 
right? But the parables of Jesus, they come and they challenge us in the ways that we think we already understand the world. But, he does, but it's kind of in a behind the back kind of way where you don't realize how you're being challenged until it's too late. Jesus is amazing. And, and one thing you may or may not know is Jesus in none of the gospels ever uses the word grace. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he doesn't say grace one time. But his life, Jesus' life is the embodiment of grace. Everything that he did, everything that he taught, every story he told was the, was the embodiment of grace. And that's certainly true with the parables as well. So the parable that we're going to tell today is the parable of the dishonest manager. And we're about to read it, but before that, just two quick things. You have to understand this, that this is the parable that directly follows the parable of the prodigal son. It's the next verse. So it's the most famous parable of Jesus, followed by probably the least famous of all of his parables. The vast majority of Christians have no idea what to do with the story that we're about to tell. And before we read it, I want to tell you this, or just plead with you to understand that this parable is not a morality story. If you're thinking, well, what's the moral of the story? None. It's not a moral. This is a parable that is not concerned with morality. It's not teaching us how to behave. It's trying to teach us something about the strange world of grace. Luke chapter 16, if you have your Bibles. Here we go. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I think that's a great country song, right? Too weak to dig and too proud to beg. It's good. So he's thinking, he's thinking, I'm about to lose my job. What should I do? Verse four, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. So he cuts his rent in half. Verse seven, then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he, re- he replied. He told them, take your bill and make it 800. So he cuts it by 20%. Verse eight, listen to this. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Hmm. All right, here's, here's the summary. Okay, there is a rich man. Have you guys noticed how many parables start like that? There was a rich man uh, and he owns a lot of land. That's why he's wealthy, right? And he rents his land out to farmers uh, and they work the land and they end up paying their rent in produce, right? So whatever they're producing on the land, they pay him in the form of rent. Maybe in, in one case, it was olive oil. In the other case, it was wheat. And so this guy is very well off and he is the land owner. So let's call him Mr. Thompson. 
Mr. Thompson is, uh, he is the, the landowner, right? He's the master. He's so successful that he needs someone to help him, uh, manage it, right? So he has this manager where he, they would collect the rent. They would take care of things. They would go answer questions. Uh, and so this is actually a practice that's still common today, having a manager of your property. So let's call this manager George. But as it would, as it, as it would come to find out, George is also a crook. It says this, that he was wasting the master's possessions. And so you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? Essentially, it's, it's probably something like embezzlement, right? Where maybe he's skimming a little bit of the produce off a little side business and selling it uh, on the side. Well, he gets busted. Right. And so the master knows that he's been doing that. So Mr. Thompson comes in and he says, he says, George, I know what you've been doing and you're fired, but I'm going to give you a few days to get everything in order. But after a few days, you are going to have to go and give me a full account. It's time for me to see the books. See what the heck you've been doing here. So George, all of a sudden, is panicking, right? He's, he's thinking, I'm too weak to dig. I'm too prou- proud to beg. Like, what am I going to do when I lose this job? Uh, but George has one last trick, and it's brilliant. It, uh, in fact, it's so brilliant that at the end of the story, Mr. Thompson will compliment him for being so shrewd. It's not a weird word, shrewd. Uh, the, the reason shrewd is in most of your Bibles is just because the translators chickened out on using the word wise. But it's the word that's translated most of the time because it doesn't shrewd. It sort of sounds wise, but also sounds like a little sneaky. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he's talking about the wise virgins or like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. You're not saying the shrewd man who builds your house on the rock, the wise man. So he's comp- Complimented at the end of this of this parable for being so wise, and here's the scheme. The scheme is this: he he calls these people who are the who are the renters, right? They're paying in the form of produce, and they say, "Oh, you're renting out that land from Mr. Thompson, is that right?" Uh, yes. Okay. And how much do you pay in rent? And the first one says, "900 gallons of oil." And so the guy says, well, good news. I've been talking with Mr. Thompson and we know that times have been tough and we know that you guys could use a break. So from here on out, all you have to pay is 450. How does that sound? I mean, oh my gosh, that's the best news ever. Thank you. Thank you, George. You have always been on my side and tell Mr. Thompson, uh, thank you too. He said, no problem. Don't mention it. Then the next man comes and he says, you own, you uh, rent land from Mr. Thompson. Is that right? And they said, yes, I do. How much do you pay rent? This time, a thousand bushels of wheat. And he says, well, from here on out, we know it's been tough. So I've been talking with Mr. Thompson. From here on out, just pay us 800. Oh my God. Oh my, thank you. By the way, uh, the discount, be it 450 gallons of oil or 200 bushels of wheat is it's about 500 denarii in both cases. And if you think a denarii is about one day's wage, I mean, this is a lot of work. Take what you get in a day and multiply it by 500 and you get about what you make in two years. And so this is a pretty big discount, but in both cases, it's the same discount. And the plan, what George was doing was this, is that by, by doing this, everyone is going to like him. Wouldn't you like the messenger of this incredible news? It's like, it's like George is proclaiming the gospel, right? He's going around and he's saying, hey, good news, your rent is cut in half. And by doing this, he's, he's befriending himself to all of these people so that when he gets fired, and he will get fired, uh, he's going to be on everybody's good side 
And so then he can essentially just go house to house, house to house. Hey, remember that time I saved you two years of rent? Uh, well, two years of, of wage? Well, I'm going to stay at your house for a while. Okay, fine. Uh, go house to house. The way that he says it in the parable is this, I would be welcomed into people's homes. And then at the close of the parable, the master commends the dishonest manager for acting wisely, right? And and then he says this phrase, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And he gives no interpretation. Uh, Julian the Apostate, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's a Roman emperor. He was the guy uh, who tried to bring the Roman Empire back to paganism after Constantine had converted the empire uh, to Christianity. So he was no fan of Christianity. Well, uh, he loved this parable. He used this parable all the time. He would point to this and say, you see there, Jesus is also morally suspect right? Jesus is not as moral as you all say he is. And on the surface, if you just take it for how it kind of looks at first glance, he almost has a good point. You could say it like this. If you try and make this a nice lesson on morality, you run into the problem of Jesus commending a crook for dishonest behavior. That's the problem. Right? But if you take it for what it is, which is an edgy, almost scandalous story on the nature of grace, you get on the right track. So what to say about the parable? Well, I have plenty. Uh, First off, number one, I want you to notice that this is parable. If you're looking at the life and teachings of Jesus, this is parable number four. He teaches these four parables in direct succession. One, two, three, four. In Luke chapter 15, the chapter prior, he teaches the parable of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin and then the parable of the lost son, right? You guys know the other name for the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, right? And then in Luke chapter 16, the very next verse, he uh, tells the story of the dishonest manager. It's really a shame that they are in different chapters because if they were all in one chapter, I think it would have helped us. Uh, But they're all four in one teaching. Jesus teaches them all in a row, and they're all designed to answer this one very simple but very complex and important question, and it's this, what is God like? What is God like? And uh, I, I, people understand the first three, and they like the first three. Number four, not a fan. I think of it like a movie franchise, you know, where like they're making like four movies. And the first one, everybody liked just fine. Second one, everybody liked just fine. Third one, everybody loved. Uh, and then the fourth one, everybody hated, right? And I can imagine people coming to Jesus and saying like, Jesus, it was a great trilogy. Like those first three were incredible. And then you ruin the entire franchise by throwing that weird one that doesn't make any sense on at the end. And it's kind of, it's kind of true because at first glance, if you look at these four stories, it would appear that the last one has almost nothing to do with the top three, right? Of course, the first story, you have a sweet story about a shepherd looking for his lost sheep. That's cute, right? Then we have a sweet story about a lady who lost her coin, And then you have a sweet story about a loving father who just wants his son to come home. And then you have a sneaky story of a crook who gets commended for his dishonest behavior, right? Jesus was a great storyteller. If nothing else, he he was a lot of things, but he was also a great storyteller. If the whole Messiah thing wouldn't have worked out, he would have been a great novelist. 
Because he can tell a story that's just so brilliant. And so each of these four parables, um, you could say it like this. Each of these four parables teach us what God is like, but with each one, they begin to get more and more scandalous to the point of number four, almost feeling absurd. You could say it like this, my slide. Number one, you have the shepherd leaving 99 sheep to find the one. Okay, well, that's... um, That's not that edgy, right? It's possibly a bad business decision. It's possibly bad shepherding, right? But besides that, I mean, no one's going to get really mad at that story. Number two, takes it to the next level where he compares God to a woman searching for her lost coin. And he guesses on why that one would be uh, controversial, right? Comparing God to a woman, right? Would not have been an acceptable practice in this day. Uh, parable number three, the parable of the product, prodigal son, it's about a son who squanders his father's money and brought shame on his family, but yet he's welcomed back, doesn't even get a chance to show he, that he's truly sorry, right? Doesn't even get an opportunity to say that he's sorry. People at this point would say like, that is almost too much because we were in, a, we were in an honor culture that they, he would have brought disgrace on the family and he would just be welcomed back and not even allowed to apologize would just feel preposterous. But maybe people are still kind of on board. And then number four, he tells the most scandalous story yet about an employee stealing from his boss and the boss commends him for being so wise. Isn't it good? I know. Okay, so I, I want to talk about just that one and the prodigal son, right? These two parables that are back to back. This story follows hard on the parable of, uh, on the heels of the parable of the prodigal son. It's literally the very next verse. And so think about the similarities between this story and the story of the prodigal son. Uh, number one, both characters betray someone's trust, right? Both characters betray someone's trust. Both misuse someone else's possessions. Both are failures, one at being a son, the other is a failure at being a manager. And lastly, both are saved by mercy or not at all. And in the end, one receives an unexpected party and the other receives an unexpected compliment. But in both cases, it's trying to teach us something about the strange world of grace. Okay, are you guys ready for me to like stop flirting and just tell you what it actually means? Okay, Okay, so George, just to recap, George, he, he's getting fired. So he goes and without prior authorization, he goes to these people and he cuts the debts of Mr. Thompson by sometimes as much as 50%, right? And so what's George doing here? Well, you could uh, start to understand maybe like this. George is gaining the approval and gratitude of others by saying that he and Mr. Thompson had their best interest in mind and lowering their rent. You on board with that? Like, imagine that happened to you. Imagine someone comes to you, the guy who usually collects your rent check, and says, hey, how much do you pay for rent? And you say, eh, 900 bucks. And he says, well, we know times are tough. So I was talking to the guy who owns this place. And from now on, just pay us $450 a month. Nothing else changes. No reason, just to be generous. How does that sound to you? You would say, oh my God, what? A toast to Mr. Thompson, right? And to George, who has, has always had our best interest in, in mind at heart. And so this is how George is brilliant. See, George is, he's a sneaky son of a gun, right? Mr. Thompson finds out about it, of course. How would, how would Mr. Thompson not find out about this, right? When the next guy goes to collect the rent and he collects some, in some cases, half, of course, Mr. Thompson finds out, right? So, so you could say it like this, George is a gambler and if he pulls it off, he's going to be saved 
And if he doesn't pull it off, he's going to jail. It's either salvation or prison. And so Mr. Thompson, though, when he sees what George has done, he has a choice. He can do one of two things so far as I can tell. Number one is this. He could throw George in jail and go around and tell everyone that the rent didn't actually go down. I'm sorry. I know you thought your rent had gone down by 50%, but George was unauthorized. So it's still the full 900. I'm sorry. He could do that. Or number two is he could think this, dang. That George sure is clever. Really put me in a corner here. Dang it. Boy, George sure is lucky that I'm kind and generous. I guess I'll just enjoy my new reputation as being the best landlord in town and let him get away with it. See, it's a high stakes gamble, right? George is betting his entire life on one thing. And it's this, that Mr. Thompson is generous. He's betting his whole life on the fact that Miss, he believes Mr. Thompson to be a generous, kind, and compassionate man. Uh, Dr. Craig Keener, he's a New Testament professor. He's brilliant. I love him. He says it like this. The manager, so we're talking about George here. The manager, George, has gained public favor for himself and for the master, Mr. Thompson, as a generous benefactor. If the master punishes the manager now, if he punishes George now, it would appear to the public that he were doing so because of the manager's benevolent act. The criminal manager, George, could be jailed, but he, he, George, wisely stakes everything on his master's honor as a generous man. Right. So you might be able to think, you could say like uh, the summary might be George gambled everything on the grace and mercy of Mr. Thompson and he won. And so if you're sitting there thinking, what? <laughs> what? That, like, I'm sorry, I didn't follow that at all. It might be because you're still trying to see this as a, mor- a morality tale. This is not a story that's teaching you how to behave. This is a story that's teaching you something about what God is like. It's not teaching you something about George. It's teaching you something about Mr. Thompson, right? If I was to try to explain it to a 12-year-old, not that you guys are 12, I know you guys are brilliant, but if I was trying to make it as simple as possible, I might say it like this. George isn't teaching us how to behave. Mr. Thompson is teaching you something about God. And George isn't being complimented for being a crook. He's complimented for gambling on the goodness of Mr. Thompson. Right? And this is, by the way, this is precisely what the parable of the prodigal son is doing as well, right? The prodigal son is not trying to tell you as a son how you ought to behave, right? Take your inheritance and spend it on booze and women. That's not the point of the story, right? We're not trying to mimic the, the prodigal son, but we're learning something about who the father is because of the father or the master in both the stories. In both cases, the story is trying to teach you something about what God is like, and just by way of backstory, when, uh, when Jesus tells these stories, the, the climate was this, is that Jesus was eating with these famous sinners, right? These, these well-known, notorious sinners. And the Pharisees, the religious people, so maybe the good people, would look on with absolute scorn and they would say this, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And to that, Jesus comes and he responds with four stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son, and the story of the dishonest manager. 
And so this really helps explain why Jesus was so popular uh, with self-proclaimed sinners, right? You could say this, like self-proclaimed sinners, in a way, really have an advantage over self-proclaimed good people, right? Because their only option in life is to throw themselves radically on the mercy of God. Self-proclaimed sinners know that they too are saved by, by grace or not at all, just like George, right? Good people, on the other hand, self-proclaimed good people, they don't feel the need to gamble on grace, they just don't feel like they need it that much. The, the idea, we would never say it, but we, we live essentially like this. Like, I'm a good person, right? I've lived a good life. I have the right faith. So in a sense, maybe God kind of, kind of like owes me, right? We, we would never say it, but we do live like it, right? And that will, that will never work. This is something you can write down. Grace is good news for people who know they need it, and bad news for people who don't know they need it. Grace is good news for people who know they need it and bad news for people who don't know they need it. So for example, let's pretend, and this is very fictional, as I'm sure you will find out soon. Let's imagine Bank of America comes and they say, hey, we want to, this letter is for all of the people who owe us money, everybody who has car loans, everybody who has home loans, everybody has any kind of debt to us. We know that times are hard. And so we're just going to cancel everybody's debt. Like we're bringing the year of Jubilee back. We thought that was a cool idea. Uh, So everyone's debt is now canceled. And so now let's imagine that you, who, let me say it like this, who would that be the best news to? The people who know that they have a debt to the bank, right? Because now all of us, oh my God, my debt, I don't have to pay that, that's incredible. But now imagine you don't owe the bank money and in your mind, and according to your books, the bank owes you. Would this be good news? No, because now all of a sudden you're questioning whether or not they're going to have the ability to pay you back, right? And that's, that's kind of how grace is, is that, is that viewed from the lens of needing grace, gambling on grace, grace will seem unbelievably beautiful. But the, the moment that you move into the land of entitlement, grace will seem ab- absurd and um, People who are good in their own eyes don't need a story like this. It just muddies the water. It's just thinking, ew, like, oh, so we're supposed to let all those other people in. All those other people are going to get in here with us. I've been following God my whole life, and now they get to sit in the chair right next to me. Gross, right? But, but people who know that they're sinners, they know that they're saved by grace or not at all. They would see a story like this, and they would say, well, that's the best news ever. Right, Even guys like George can gamble on the goodness of Jesus and not be disappointed. And that is good news for me. Uh, Reverend Joseph Beach, uh, he is a pastor in Denver Amazing Grace Church. Uh, he says this, I love this quote. I never bet against the mercy of God. I don't like my odds. I love that. I never bet against the mercy of God. I don't like the odds. The dice are loaded. Because God's mercy always triumphs. And that's the story, right? George bet on the goodness of Mr. Thompson and he won big. 
And then the parable ends like this, verse eight, just one more time. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly or wisely. For the people, listen to this phrase, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. It's an interesting phrase, don't you think? People of the light. Uh, Some of your Bibles would probably say sons of light or even children of light. It's a phrase that Jesus hardly ever uses. He uses it exactly twice. He uses it here and then he uses it in John chapter 12. And it's a controversial phrase for the time. For a long time, we didn't understand what that meant. So we were just trying to think, I'm assuming that means like good people or holy people or something like that. That's not what it means. We learned a lot what it finally means by the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's, in, in particular, there's a scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls called the War Scroll, and it talks about the sons of light. Essentially, what it is is this. There was this widespread belief in Jesus's day that there was this huge war coming, and it was between the sons of light and the sons of darkness, and it was this huge clash that was going to take place. And the sons of light, they were going to win, and they were going to bring righteousness to the earth. And this was a belief that was held by the Essenes and even many of the Pharisees. And so for them, it was a really common thing to say the sons of light and talking about like the forces of darkness versus the forces of good. And so when people would tell these stories, maybe tell their stories to their grandkids and their friends, they would tell the stories and they saw themselves as, who do you think? The sons of light, of course, right? Of course, we're the good guys. Uh, Jesus comes and he says something that is quite provocative. And he says this, you know, the sons of light aren't very smart, right? And, and that doesn't shock you because that's not a group that you identify with, right? But now imagine Jesus tells a parable. And then at the end, he says, you know, the evangelical Christians are not that smart, right? And all of a sudden you'd be thinking, what? What, 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 what he's saying is this, is that self-professed good guys aren't actually that smart. Why? Because they trust in their own goodness, right? And so Jesus here is saying, hey, hey sinners are actually smarter than the self-righteous. The sons of light, see, they have a way of leaning onto their own goodness, but sinners, they know that they need mercy. You could say it like this. It's smarter to bet on God's mercy than on your goodness, It's smarter to bet on God's mercy than on your goodness. Christianity is not a religion where do-gooders get by by doing good. Even though that is the religion that the Pharisees wanted, right? And that's even the religion that the older brother wanted, where do-gooders get by by doing good. But Jesus comes and he says this, well, what if it's actually the opposite of that? Like what what if the wise ones are actually the ones who know that they need mercy? And so if Christianity is not a religion where do-gooders get by by doing good, then what is it? Then what is Christianity? Here's my sentence. Christianity is the mercy and grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. And if you earn it, it's not grace, right? Christianity is betting everything on the mercy and grace of God and coming up big. And for me, you know, this parable means a lot to me because, because mercy is why I'm here. It is. Like the reason I'm sitting in this chair is because of the mercy of God. And I wonder if you can see yourself in that too. That the reason that you're sitting in that chair is because of the mercy of God. 
I wonder how many of us in the room would agree with this statement. If it were not for the mercy and grace of God, I don't know where I'd be. Probably most of us, right? We are people who gambled on the grace of God and we won big. Two takeaways and then I'll get you out of here. Number one is this. We miss the heart of Christianity the moment we lean on our own goodness. And so that's, that's actually good news, believe it or not. Uh, because no matter who you are and no matter what you've done and no matter how broken and ashamed and unworthy you feel, you have just as much right to be at the table of Jesus Christ as anybody else. Anybody. Because there is, there is no one who comes to Jesus through their own good works. Nobody. And so you, you go to God through the exact same doorway that Mother Teresa does the exact same door that, that Reverend Billy Graham goes through. And that's the door of the mercy of God. And number two is this. As we follow Jesus, we seek to offer his curious grace to others. As we follow Jesus, we seek to offer his curious grace to others. See, for the Christian, we are always in the business of treating people better than they deserve hear that. Not how they deserve, but better than they deserve. Why? Because we get treated by God consistently better than we deserve. We as Christians are in the business of forgiving debts because our debts have been forgiven. And so if you feel far from God today, just, just know this, that Jesus offers you a seat at the table. Yes, it's scandalous, but it's who he is. Right? And your role is actually real clear. Right? You come as the crook. <laughs> like that's your character. What's my character in the story? The crook. Right? You are the crook that's gambling on the grace of God and he comes and he meets you. That's what's amazing about the cross. Right? The cross is not just one thing. The cross is lots of different things. But one thing that the cross certainly is, is it's God coming through Jesus and canceling your debt the debt that you could never pay, right? And so here's the closing statement and then we'll pray. Let's go through all four of the parables just briefly. What is God like? That's the question. What is God like? God is like a shepherd looking for his lost sheep who when he finds the sheep, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and carries it to safety. God is like the woman searching the house for her lost coin who frantically looks day and night to find her precious coin and rejoices when it's found. God is like the father who eagerly waits for his son to come home and showers him with kisses when he does. God is like the manager who is abounding in grace and mercy even to a crook like me. Let me pray for you. God, we love you so much. Uh, we're so grateful for you. And we're, this morning in particular, we are profoundly grateful for your mercy and your kindness. We, we remember in our own hearts and in our own lives that your grace is the reason that we're here. And every single person who would ever have any confidence to come to you, that's just a beautiful gift that you give us. None of us deserve it any more than anybody else. It's just a free gift. And we say, thank you even for all those times when we don't live up to the, the high calling that you've put on all of our hearts. And instead of running to you, we run away from you. 
we know that your arms are open wide to each and every one of us. And maybe for people in here uh, today that feel far from you, and maybe they feel like you've left or maybe they feel like they've left, my prayer is that they would, even now, even in these little moments, they would begin to experience the presence of God, not as, not as the harsh judge, not as the lightning bolt thrower, but, but the dad who waits for the son to come home. And it's not about the speech. It's not about you having everything in order. It's just about you coming back to him. And Father, we thank you and we love you. And it's in the most precious name of Jesus that we pray. Everybody said, amen.